0: I'm Paul Comfort, and this is Transit Unplugged. On today's episode, I'm excited to have on as our guest, Stephen Gardner, the CEO of Amtrak. This is part of a regular program we're doing now where we're swapping podcasts with other podcasts that are kind of in our genre or neighborhood, as they call it. And this is one that was recorded for APTA, the American Public Transportation Association. They recorded Stephen Gardner at the APTA conference this last year. I've been wanting to get him on the show for a while, so it's great to have him on one way or the other. I think you'll really enjoy this episode, an in-depth look at what's happening with our National Railroad of Amtrak here in the United States. Uh, Happy to have my buddy Art Gazzetti, who is Vice President of Policy at APTA, conduct the interview. We're also doing some surveys online if you are listening to transit unplugged on spotify take a look at some of the polls we're putting up there we also do some polling now and then on our linkedin site take a look at those and if you get a chance tell us what you think we're always looking for listener input as to the direction the program goes hope you enjoy today's episode with stephen gardner ceo of amtrak courtesy of apta
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to this special episode of The Transit Authority. Uh, We are recording live on the trade show floor from APTA Expo in Orlando, Florida. Extremely excited today to be talking with a great audience and a great friend, Amtrak CEO, uh, Stephen Gardner. I'm Art Gazzetti, APTA Vice President for Policy and Mobility at the American Public Transportation Association. Uh, Stephen, thank you for joining us uh, for this very special episode of the Transit Authority. Hi, Art. Thanks for having me. Uh, Stephen, it's it's great to be here with you uh, today. This morning, as part of APTA's Transform uh, Conference, uh, we celebrated former Congressman Bob Clement. Uh, His career, his commitment to the expanding people's transportation options through investments in transit and passenger rail. Uh, You got your start in uh, Congressman's office. Uh, Then he was ranking member of the House Railroad Subcommittee. Uh, Can you tell us a little about your uh, professional journey, Uh, how that led you to leading Amtrak, starting with an intern, uh, in the House of Representatives and growing all the way to that position. Uh, tell us about your start with Congressman Clement.
2: Well, thanks Art, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, and actually, I am incredibly lucky to have benefited from two different internships and uh, that helped me uh, achieve uh, the professional development I've been able to in my career. I've been so lucky to do that. I started first as an Amtrak intern, in fact, Mm-hmm. in Washington and uh, working in the transportation department and um, used that experience to then get more involved in uh, railroading generally and worked on the freight side of the business and then had a chance to come to Washington. I'm a DC kid. It's where I'm born and uh, born and raised in, in the DC area. And um, I think one of the things that is special about growing up in that area is that you know, it's a company town. Everyone's in government, and and it seems accessible to you because everyone's parents, their you know brothers, sisters, everyone works for the government in some way. So it seemed totally feasible to me that if I wanted to be part of making rail a more vibrant and important part of mobility in the United States, and I knew the federal government had a lot, lot, a lot of role to play in that, that one could go up and just go be part of that conversation. Uh, I think quite naive uh, in a certain sense, but it turned out to be true in part because. I um, uh, was able to get an internship with the TNI, which is the Transportation Infrastructure Committee in the House of Representatives, uh, with their railroad subcommittee staff. And as you said, the ranking member of that subcommittee was a guy named Bob Clement from Tennessee. And it just happened that he was deeply interested in not only railroads, but particularly Amtrak and passenger trains. And he had a long desire to return service to his hometown of Nashville. And, uh, and to restart uh, an Amtrak service called the Floridian that, that had uh, been discontinued, uh, much to his uh, and many Tennesseans' regret. So um, I was this young intern. I would worked on the railroad uh, in a variety of operating positions, had come to be an intern. And uh, my internship period of the summer was coming up. And I needed a job. And I... Very lucky uh, to uh, to have his support and interest. To have somebody who cared about railroads come work on his staff, and became his uh, transportation legislative aide. Um, and from there, um, had a had a great uh, opportunity to work uh, in the Senate and and focus really on railroad and transportation and service transportation issues. So I owe a lot to to, to the congressman for giving a young kid interested in trains a shot. And uh, I'm always really grateful that he. Uh, had such strong leadership both for intercity passenger rail but transit generally and saw a future for Nashville uh, that I think probably many people couldn't see at the time that he was he was uh, in Congress and, um, and and worked really hard through those early transportation bills as you as you remember T21 and, and uh, the successors uh, and nice tea before that uh, to put in place some of the opportunities we have today Well, I was
1: uh, happy to know you back then, Stephen, at the beginning, and certainly we were very proud to honor uh, Congressman Clement today for for his service. Uh, We're here in the Expo Hall at APTA. Uh, We gather at this critical time with so many partners from the business sector. Uh, Can you outline the various ways Amtrak looks to the supply sector for help? Uh, What are some of the upcoming opportunities that they might be looking for uh, in the next few months and what are some of the contracts uh, that you have been awarded that have already been awarded
2: that are in progress today and bearing fruit yeah well our it's really an exciting time for Amtrak it's a new era of intercity passenger rail investment uh, we we talk about this at the company all the time that we're the luckiest generation of Amtrak employees except maybe that very first group who got to stand up the enterprise um, but to put in context the opportunity between the Department of Transportation and Amtrak, there's about $60 billion in federal investment available. That's the equivalent. Uh, it's available over the next five years. That's the equivalent amount of money that's essentially been invested in passenger rail for the entire 50 years preceding us. So 50 years worth of previous investment now available to us in five uh, and it's a, um, a really a chance to reinvigorate a whole industry and as part of that it's not just about Amtrak the carrier it's about the entire ecosystem and all of the uh, suppliers vendors innovators uh, employees communities that are, re-engaging and passenger rail and thinking about how to move forward. So we're um, working on an incredibly ambitious capital program. We just finished our fiscal year. We spent out $3 billion in capital, which is essentially a 100% increase from about four years ago. So a huge increase in 24 FY24, the fiscal year we just started, our capital budget is about $5 billion. So uh, to do all that requires a whole new workforce. We've hired about 8,000 people in the last two years, Art, an incredible Mm -hmm. increase uh, and and a new generation of railroad workers, and then an entirely expanded and new uh, vendor and supplier base. So we uh, have about 15 billion in contracts to let over the next uh, 12, 12 and a half, 13 months. uh, And we're working hard to get the community uh, to understand our pathway forward. And for the first time, I think what's really important for Amtrak, which is you know we've been in a unique position, which is an entity that's funded on an annual basis, even though we have this big, huge capital program that we need to develop. For the first time, the IIJ, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, gives us five years of guaranteed funding, more or less. And that's allowing us to go out to market for these multi-billion dollar contracts. Um, well, right now, we just awarded a CMAR, a Constructor Manager at Risk uh, contract for our new Frederick Douglass Tunnel in Baltimore, a $6 billion huge program there. Uh, we have a number of exciting procurements coming out. Everyone should go check out the Amtrak Procurement Portal. Mm-hmm. It's got the whole list there, we got about 10 opportunities currently. And we're really uh, engaged in also diversifying our supplier base, a whole new divir- uh, supp- supplier diversity effort at the company, and we're bringing lots of folks in into the market that have never really seen the opportunity before because we haven't built at this level. But uh, Amtrak's now a major construction company in addition to a railroad, and uh, we need partners all over America to help us implement the vision.
1: Just to pick up on what you just said, uh, Stephen, and to talk to all the uh, suppliers and business community here today, uh, how would you describe, is that a market signal? You know, in the past, uh, maybe the signal wasn't as strong as it is now. You now know... That there's investment to be made this year and there's investment to come after that Uh, how can the business community prepare and anticipate that kind of uh uh,
2: ongoing market yeah i I think it is a strong signal and um I, i think if you just step back and think about it you know amtrak and and my predecessors we were always in a big bind about how to take care of some of the big assets, whether it be fleet or stations or infrastructure, without knowing whether we could sort of write the check at the time the dollars were due, right? We could start a procurement, we could order some equipment, but in five years when we had to pay the bill, would the money be there? We didn't have any certainty there. And so it was a huge risk for the company uh, to engage in that kind of, let's call it speculative, but important planning. What's really changed now is we have confidence about our ability to, to, to write the check And that means we can really bring forward projects we've been building in the planning pipeline for decades and now move into construction. Um, And I think our partners in uh, the vendor community, suppliers, contractors, uh, they can feel confident that this is a new era of opportunity. Amtrak's really rebuilding our capability to partner with them so we can be a good counterparty and so that people are attracted to our jobs. Because we know there's a lot of competition for big infrastructure out there, not just in the rail and transit space, but across highways and aviation and energy, water. Uh, so we need to be good, um, good, attractive uh, owners to work with, and we're, we're building up that capability but I think the market here is um, hopefully just getting started. Our goal is to find great partners, deliver as promised for the public. And that means this initial investment is in fact just the down payment on the billions of investments that we see necessary to deliver a 21st century rail network and to serve more America, which is, which is really top on our list since we think passenger trains are key to the future of the country. Stephen,
1: question. Why is travel by intercity passenger rail so much more prevalent in Europe and Asia? Uh, how can the US travel options be made more attractive? Uh, we were together recently at the World Congress on high-speed rail in, in Morocco. What, what can we learn from the international community? What can we uh,
2: do to bring our standards up to theirs? Well, I think we've, we've started with what I just described, which is a commitment of investment for a period more than a year. And if you look at rail systems across the the globe, um, they all take a long-term, policy-centered, sustained investment approach to deliver enhanced networks. And that's what we've missed. I mean, in Europe, from 2020 to 2000, so about 20 years, the investment in rail was a trillion dollars, or a trillion, right? So the question is, you know, Why do we have the system we have? Because we've only invested for the system that we have, right? We get what we pay for. If we want a better system that serves more of America and that offers more frequencies and better trip times, more reliability, we need to invest. And we've started to do that here with this bill. And um, our key now is to turn that opportunity into results and demonstrate that this is a path that um, we should take as a nation and, and that it was a wise initial investment. But I think... The, the other key uh, that, that is important to remember is you know the United States has a huge rail system. We have the largest rail network of any nation on earth. Uh, so we have railroads and we have rights away here. Uh, the question is, how do we update them and modernize them for uh, passenger service and freight? Because we need both. We need rail to do more in both sectors across the nation, and it's about finding that right design and right planning approach. That's really different than the rest of the world because mostly everywhere else the infrastructure is publicly owned and this question of prioritizing the infrastructure's use for mobility for people and goods is something that the public decides uh, through its planning regime as opposed to um, our our system where it's a partnership and it involves collaboration and and we're invested in, in making that collaboration work. Stephen, Amtrak recently received
1: a number of grants through FRA's Consolidated Rail Infrastructure and Safety Improvements Program, a program we know as CRISI. Can you describe the system improvements those funds are going to bring about uh, on Amtrak?
2: Yeah, we're really excited about these grants, and I'd say they're the first sort of big uh, set of announcements that start what, what I hope is a whole season of, of big announcements to come as the DOT works through some other grant programs that uh, hopefully will be announced here uh, in the next couple of weeks or months. Um, the big exciting project that I think tops the list, we, Amtrak uh, was successful in about $200 million of investment from the program. We really thank the leadership of the Secretary and the Administrator, Meet Bose. Um, but the one that tops the list is our Gulf Coast Service. This is a partnership between us and those the freight railroads who own the infrastructure uh, between mobile and new orleans to bring service back to the gulf coast this is a service that we lost uh, back in katrina days and um, it's really exciting and, and represents really the first new service in the South, which uh, is a really important market for us. When you look at where Amtrak has service and where population has grown since we were founded in 1971, I think the Southeast is the is the part of the country we serve the least well. We have the least amount of service and you've seen the most population growth. And there are great corridors all over the South and Southeast. And um, so I'm really excited about this uh, mobile service, uh, which will start uh, sometime next year. And the Chrissy grant gives us the dollars to make a series of improvements along the railroad and uh, and get that service going together with the, with the states and the Southern Rail Commission. Additionally, we had some great safety investments both on that corridor and then some additional fencing uh, on the long, along the northeast corridor. We partnered and supported Massachusetts uh, for uh, some infrastructure improvements to uh begin new service between Boston and and Springfield and connecting to the South. So a lot of great opportunity, but I think just a drop in the bucket for all the things that we uh, are excited to do here in the next couple of years.
1: We're talking today from Orlando, Florida, where uh, just in the last few weeks, the Brightline opened service uh, here to Orlando. Meanwhile, other parts of the country, Nevada, California, Brightline West is making progress on service linking uh, Los Angeles uh, to Las Vegas um, and California high-speed rail authority makes progress on a system-wide high-speed rail system. What is Amtrak's role and uh, position uh, or position in the future of high-speed rail in the United States? Those being high-speed systems, Amtrak being more of a incremental uh, type of system. Um, are those separate or you it come together? Uh, What's high speed rail future for him sure
2: yeah good good question well first um, you know congratulations to brightline and Wes Edens and uh, Mike Reiniger for del- delivering on their vision of connecting uh, Orlando here and um, we're we're in general really excited about all of these investment uh, and uh, all the investment and all the interest in expanding modern uh, passenger rail service, uh, whether that be high speed or high quality conventional service. Um, we think anybody who's interested in the mode is uh, you know, our friend basically, because we think that the overall mission here is to create more value and more mobility opportunities using passenger rail across the country. So we're looking always at partnerships and opportunities to be um, using the uh, kind of capacity and capabilities we have at Amtrak to support growth in passenger rail service. Um, our high-speed interests have, you know, have been sustained uh, for a long time at the, in, in, in Amtrak. Of course, uh, a lot of focus has been on getting those speeds on the Northeast Corridor up. We'll be, you know, introducing 160 mile an hour service there soon. Um, but I think the big issue has been the lack of investment for true high speed, and uh, we believe that the work now with these investments that are made possible by the infrastructure bill for planning and development can put us in position to advance future high-speed networks. So we're really interested. We've hired a guy named Andy Byford came to us, uh, from his time in the UK and, uh, in New York MTA and Toronto is a great leader in, in our industry to focus on our high-speed, um, program and portfolio at Amtrak. And really we see this as an opportunity to bring together, uh, and, and really facilitate or support, Uh, regions that see high speed in their future. So, of course, California is doing great work to advance their system, interested in the Brightline West work, looking at uh, partnering where we can uh, support up in the Cascadia and the Pacific Northwest. But we see high speed as an integral part of the future network, Um, one that sits on the base of a a big conventional network. That's how it works everywhere in the world. You know, you don't have just high speed alone. You have high speed supported by regional and inner city service and transit, That's what makes the whole system work, Um, but we see a bright future. And I think now's the time to make these initial investments and build up the momentum. So the next infrastructure bill, which is already gonna be upon us in 2027, Mm -hmm. not far, uh, we're ready to make the case for the kind of investments we need to really launch a world-class system.
1: We're getting there one step at a time. That's for sure, Stephen. And uh, can you explain to listeners how Amtrak works with states to um, provide corridor service what opportunities are there to grow new and improve passenger rail? Uh, given the funds available through IIJA Act, uh, which um, creates opportunities
2: for passenger rail, working with states. Yeah, well, states are really the heart uh, and soul of uh, Amtrak's uh, na- national network. Uh, we have this great long distance network that sort of serves the as the foundation, I'll say, for all of our service. But on top of that, our state corridors are really the big driver of of ridership. They produce about 50% of all of Amtrak's riders. And let me say it's really great um, to see our ridership come back our uh, last three months, we've been about 120% of our pre-pandemic levels on the Northeast Corridor and about 110% um, of uh, our pre-pandemic levels on the national system. So we're fully recovered. uh, And in fact, ahead of where we were starting from the pandemic. And a lot of that comes from our partnership with states. The way that works is the federal government has established essentially a cooperative between us and states where uh, we, Amtrak, bring access rights to the railroads, equipment, all the systems are skilled craftspeople and technology, and uh, partner with local sponsors at the state level uh, to operate train service less than 750 miles. So these are typically corridors uh, connecting a a couple of major cities, might be intrastate, might be interstate, might involve a couple of different state partners, and we enter into annual contracts. And we have a uh, a, uh, commission, basically, that has governance around this whole structure and and a lot of leadership from the DOT and FRA. The infrastructure bill provides some really great opportunities to expand that service. One, by creating a new quarter development program, identification development program led by the FRA, and we were really happy to, I think, try and get um, a clear message to Congress that there's a lot of opportunity to expand the network. Our goal is to double our ridership size by 2040, so that's about 66 million riders. The only way we do that is by serving more communities with new service and to do that in partnership with our state colleagues. So this quarter ID program came out of the bill and it's a way for these quarters to get into a pipeline of development, kind of like the FTA CIG program, right? Where there's a staged program and and an opportunity folks can get into the pipeline and know that at the end they have an opportunity to, to see capital investment. Additionally, new, um, a new lower barrier to the operating costs of new service uh, through the restoration enhancement program some of the big things that are going to come out of all this are the service to the gulf coast i mentioned new service coming to the twin cities uh, an extension of our hiawatha service there next year two new frequencies uh, coming back five and six on the cascades uh, so a couple of near-term routes and then a lot of things as the quarter id program develops here that are going to be put in motion that'll deliver service in the near term say three to five years, and uh, we're uh, partnering with states all over America to do that, and, and with other uh, partners as well, because um, we, we want to, again, add value where we can, which is, doesn't mean we have to do everything. We try and find the spot that we can make a difference in and and, and support our partners. Uh,
1: a pipeline, a robust pipeline of project, that's a, a good signal for the business community and a good signal to the public uh, as well. In addition, uh, to these growing corridors, the FRA is undergoing a study of long-distance network. Uh, what are you looking for out of that, Stephen, uh, in
2: terms of the future long-distance uh, network that uh, that you operate? Well, we, um, we're really excited about the long-distance network. First, Congress made a very strong commitment to preserving the current network in this bill, and really importantly, to re The network as it exists today. So we have a, you know, the backbone of that fleet is basically late 1970s um, through the 80s, and we are about to undertake the largest rolling stock procurement in America since about 1947 in the New York Central. So Mm -hmm. we're looking to have. a, an incredible uh, opportunity for car builders to uh, be part of creating a new generation of long distance uh, equipment that can serve today's 15 routes. And um, this study, as you mentioned, that the FRA is leading is looking forward past the active sort of updating what we have and thinking about what else could we add to that system. And, uh, we're really excited about those opportunities. I and mean, it's going to take Congress, uh, of course, following through with investment to make that happen because, um, it certainly would take investment, but we think the longest network today has been a through COVID and, and post, it's been a really a strong, strong performer. Um, and one that I think has shown its value, um, in the near term, what we were interested in a couple of projects that are, I think are pretty compelling, which is to get those 7 three-day-a-week trains. We have two of them up to seven days a week, so we have daily service on some of the routes and also some places where, for instance, we don't serve today Phoenix, which is a huge omission uh, up there with places like Nashville where we we, we just are absent in the market uh, and we'd like to be able to run our sunset service via Phoenix and that involves restoring some track there. So we're looking at incremental improvements while this study is going on and then Congress um, has the chance to act and and put in motion the kind of future growth that's necessary Um, on the fleet side to see expansion along distance and look at the network and see where we can add more value connecting our regions.
1: Well, as you plan to develop that national network, uh, you also have the very heavily traveled Northeast Corridor where you've worked with uh, states for for quite a few years to plan, uh, you know, improvements to America's highest traffic uh, growth corridor. Uh, What improvements can riders expect to see in the coming years and what kind of regional impact will a healthy Northeast Corridor make to America?
2: Uh, well, um, all right. it's a great question. I mean, the Northeast Corridor is the main line of passenger railroading in North America. It's uh, There's no corridor quite like it in terms of density. Uh, right now, it's about 2,000 trains a day uh, on this railroad uh, between Amtrak commuter railroads and, and, and our freight uh, colleagues. Uh, so it's really a, a special piece of infrastructure connecting this sort of pearl of cities up up the coast, um, but it is in need of huge investments to recapitalize its assets, most of which are 100 or 100 plus years old, and that's what we're really focused on right now. So, um, in a sense, the first thing people are going to see is a lot of construction. You know, that's not and they usually that's not necessarily a great thing. We all know from sort of summer traffic, you know, when people have cones out on the highways, et cetera. But we're working really hard to make sure that as we rebuild the railroad, we also are improving service. That's going to show up as as new equipment and our new Acellas, which which we uh, hope to launch next year, and replacing our AM fleet, which is the regional equipment, uh, with new um, uh, state-of-the-art train sets in about 2026, so um, there'll be new trains coming. In the meantime, we do we're getting a ton of work done, increasing the reliability, upgrading our assets, smoothing out the ride, uh, and um, doing the kind of things that are basically bread and butter to maintaining a reliable railroad, but that Amtrak's not been able to afford to do in, in decades past. So we're we're digging out of a hole, frankly, Art. That was made from decades of underinvestment. Got a lot of work to do there. But as we do that, every one of these steps, for instance, this new tunnel we're building in Baltimore, that's gonna allow us to have a 100 mile an hour alignment into the city as opposed to 30 mile an hour alignment. Uh, and it's gonna not only benefit Amtrak by reducing trip time and creating more reliability, it's gonna help our, our partner Mark, the MTA commuter service, achieve basically a half hour trip time uh, between New uh, Boston, or excuse me, Baltimore and Washington, which is a, a game changer for sort of bringing the metropolitan regions together. So uh, a lot of a lot of opportunity, it's gonna come kind of incrementally piece by piece. Um, so we ask for people's patience and there's gonna be changes in service levels and other things to accommodate all this work. But in the end, we're gonna end up with a much higher capacity, much more reliable uh, asset that's going to be hugely capacitizing to growth and mobility in the corridor. Cause we all know the highway system is not going to grow and it can't keep up and um, we have uh, a a climate crisis that demands that we come up with alternative ways to address mobility and and rail in the northeast where we already uh uh, you know rely on a, a big portfolio of renewables uh is the way for us to get uh carbon-free and, and really highly capacitized mobility. In the-
1: if there's anything that is a project of national significance, I would say it's the Northeast Corridor. It's the foundation of so much economic activity that benefits everybody. So uh, keep doing good things uh, on that, Stephen. And, but as a, we talk about the Northeast Corridor, I also want to make sure we also talk about rural America, and Amtrak has a critical role uh, you know, in Rural America.
2: So, I just asked to describe the importance of Amtrak to rural America. Well, absolutely right, Art. I mean, our our business is really connecting communities to each other, and that um, means not only big cities to big cities, but to all of the intermediate towns and communities that. need access to those metropolitan regions. And one of the amazing things that's happened during uh, sort of post-pandemic period is all the growth and leisure demand. And that's, it's one of the things that's really benefiting Amtrak is people want to get out and experience and explore America. And the train allows you to get to sort of the heart of small towns all over the country and also to really engage in the pageantry and sort of grandeur of our nation mm-hmm. and our geography. And um, so it, whether it's the empire builder which is you know a route that many people uh love and and delivers you to glacier national parks front door or the coast starlight or the the zephyr um these are places that uh, take uh i think people from all over the world to some of the really special parts of of our nation some of the less discussed and sort of maybe heralded but just important are the many communities we serve on our long-distance network, particularly in the south and in, uh, in the Midwest, places where without Amtrak, there's no public transportation. There's no opportunity for people to travel unless they have our service because bus services retrenched uh, regional airline service has dramatically uh, retrenched since um, the pandemic, and that was already a trend well underway. So many places, we're the only service. I just took, took a Capital Limited to the Texas Eagle to the Sunset and uh, had a great trip all across the country. And, you know, you get up, I, I make sure to get up at every station. I get up at 3 a.m., see who's getting on the train. It's incredible. Some of the places I go and there's 30 people at 3 a.m. waiting for a train in a place like Little Rock. Uh, which is you know hardly rural. It's a major city, but it's the only transportation option available, and to connect from Little Rock to some of the, the smaller communities up and down the line. And if you think that's the demand at 3 a.m., you know what could we do if we served these communities at the right time of day with the right frequency with reliable service? So I think there's just huge amounts of demand and opportunity, and finally the dollars are coming. Um, to allow us to start to build I think the network that's worthy of it
1: vital those are vital mobility connections and uh, I know you get a lot of support from those states and we're going to keep pushing Uh, Stephen as I look around I see students uh, students that are here so just would you have a message for students you started young with a love of railroading and of continue to have a, a wonderful career, contributing contributing to our communities, contributing to our nation. What might you what message might you have uh, to our students? Would a career in railroading be an attractive option for
2: them to pursue? Well, uh, let me just say, I think um, career in railroading is great. <laughs> uh, I've been so uh, lucky to... Um, and, and let me also just say, I think you know, for a long time, our industry was in retrenchment, right? I was, I remember when I first arrived at Amtrak, you, if we were all, if we were in a room and there were a hundred people in the room, I asked how, how many people, how long people have been there. Most of the hands would say 30 to 35 years. Some people worked at the company 40 years and the people who had been in the company for less than 10 were maybe, you know, 10%. Uh, and it was uh, an, an, a era where most of the folks who worked in our business were holding on. They were sort of, preserving a network through difficult and lean times. And they did their job. They did a great job keeping together a system sort of with bailing wire and duct tape and got us to a point now where we get to reinvent that system and reinvigorate it. And so we're uh, looking high and low everywhere we can for people who share that passion and mission for enhancing transportation. And um, the opportunity has never been greater. We. As I said, we've hired 4,500 people this year. We're looking for sort of all types and all roles all across America. And um, so for folks in school who are thinking about transportation, um, I can't say enough about the unique role that I think Amtrak can, can offer because of our geographic uh, you know coverage and the many different types of activities we have at the company. You know, if you think about it, we're a hotel a bus operator, a power company, a transmission company, a construction company, a restaurant, you know, an a, a a, um, e-commerce company, a sales and distribution marketing enterprise, all these different functions have to be housed in a railroad. So there's so much opportunity for people to get involved in different things. And I think, you know, my my view, even though I'm a total train nerd, variety within the universe of railroading, I think is what's really fun. You
1: could have no more rewarding Rewarding career than what you just described. That's that's awesome. Just a just a couple more uh, questions, Stephen. Uh, we were together just a uh, an hour or two ago in a, in a session titled uh, Making the Connection: The Intersection of Cities, Transit, and Passenger Rail." Any message uh, you might want to share uh, from those listening to the podcast? Any theme that came out of
2: that that you found noteworthy? Well, I, I would just um, I would say that one of the things that's unique in our role at Amtrak, right? Because we're, we're created by the public sector with a public mission. We do that with commercial and sort of private sector DNA as a corporation. Um, but we accomplish the things we do through partnership. It, it we're, we're never a unitary actor. We never, you know, Amtrak, much to the frustration of many sometimes us as well we'd love to be able to just say we're going to run trains there tomorrow or that's what we're going to do and i'm going to grab some equipment from someplace i'm going to start running trains it doesn't work that way we do everything we do through partnerships partnership with states with communities with our federal government owners uh with congress and it's through that collaboration that we get stuff done so it takes a certain perseverance uh in, in a sort of evangelical spirit in a way to like get everyone connected and uh, see the opportunity and try to make things happen. And, um, you know, at Amtrak, we want to be the sort of active ingredient in getting stuff done. And that means finding partnerships everywhere we can at every level uh, to try and enhance mobility. And I think that's one of the things that came out of the conversation we had today with, with mayors and, Mm. and, and community uh, leaders at the local level. How do we build um, a better partnership and more structure and support for connecting the different levels of government, private sector, enterprises like Amtrak, our freight colleagues, uh, to enhance uh, mobility because we all know it's in—it's all in our collective interest. I mean, there's a sort of—it can't be any more obvious that we all benefit tremendously when we have an efficient system that provides opportunity for people. And um, we sometimes let the divisions get in the way. And with all this new investment, the time is now for us to achieve real results and and sort of prove to the public that given the shot, we can get stuff done that that's meaningful and creates value. So, um, but we're only going to do that by all working together. It was a
1: wonderful conversation, Stephen, you had with mayors and those who weren't able to attend, uh, you can watch the recording of it. So please uh, look for that on the APTA website. And well, Stephen, we're about at time here. So I'm going to ask if there are any uh, concluding thoughts that you might want to squeeze in, uh, what can APTA do and other advocates gathered around us do to to move the long-awaited uh, passenger rail agenda
2: forward? Well, thanks, Art. First, just let me thank you for, for doing this and having me on. Um, you know, I think APTA is an incredibly important organization that brings focus uh, to, you know, I think a huge part of mobility that often is sort of below a lot of folks' radar, right? And, it's, I, and you bring focus and attention both um, to people – who can find an incredibly meaningful career for industry and private sector who are looking for new opportunities to bring innovation and, and develop capacity and, 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 alert, uh, our political leaders, both at the federal level and state and local level, how important and vital the role of mobility is and, and the role that public transit plays. So I think, um, I want to recognize and applaud that. I, I think that we are, um, in this period of time where there's a lot of opportunity investment happening, but already I'm thinking about 2027. It's not far. The debate, as you know, will begin if certainly in 2026, if not well before in 2025, about the next set of investments necessary to build on this initial investment. And so um, we need to be thinking about how we have this investment serve as the down payment for what what really I think is a 20 year program of investment across uh, our infrastructure to recover the lost decades and put our whole network sort of regardless of mode into the 21st century. And um, so we need to start celebrating the successes that we're having now and start to create the vision for how this continues and is worthy of further support uh, as when the time comes. Well, thank you, Stephen,
1: and thank you to our live audience and to our listeners for joining us for this episode of The Transit Authority, APTA's official podcast. We thanks again uh, to Stephen Gardner uh, for taking time to join us. Everyone, be sure to subscribe to our podcast at podcast.apta.com or wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Uh, Thanks again.
3: Hi, this is Tris Hussey, editor of the Transit Unplugged podcast. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Transit Unplugged from our friends at the Transit Authority at APTA with Art Gazetti and Stephen Gardner. Now, coming up next week is the first of two episodes that come to you from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and the newly rebranded Metrolink Tulsa. First up, we have the head of Metrolink Tulsa, Scott Marr, talking about his system and his plans for a BRT line to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Route 66. If you have a question, comment, or would like to be a guest on the show, email us at info at Transitunplugged.com, transitunplugged.com is also where you can read our blog and sign up for our newsletter, and not to mention catch up on any past episodes you might have missed. Transit Unplugged is brought to you by Medaxo. At Medaxo, we're passionate about moving the world's people. And at Transit Unplugged, we're passionate about telling those stories. So until next week, ride safe and ride happy.